Welcome to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. We're glad you've joined us, and we look forward to spending time again in the Word of God together. We also invite you to stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast for information about additional studies and resources. Thanks again for being with us. Have you ever wondered what the future holds? Is there any way to know what lies in store for our world? While many have made their predictions, the Bible in breathtaking detail spells out many specifics about the coming days. We'll learn a great deal about these things, joining Pastor Phil as he takes us through the book of Revelation. Let's listen. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation? The last time you were here, we were in Romans. We went really fast (laughs) through the rest of the New Testament so we can get here. But yes, the rumor is true. We are starting tonight a new study. In the book of Revelation, not Revelations, as I hear so many Christians say. I said Revelation. You did. It is the book of Revelation. In fact, one of the keys to understanding the book comes right out of the first sentence. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of St. John the Divine, as some of the Bibles introduce it. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation comes from the Greek, a Greek word apocalyptus. And it's a word we get our English word apocalypse from. And of course, our English word apocalypse has come to mean the chaos and catastrophe associated with the final destruction of mankind. However, the Greek word apocalyptus simply means to uncover or to reveal or to make manifest. Think of it this way. You're in a park and you see that there is a sheet covering what looks like a statue. And people are gathering and there's obviously going to be an unveiling soon. And from where you're standing, you can see a little bit of the shape of this statue. But the sheet, of course, is obstructing your view as to what really is underneath that sheet. And at one point, of course, as the crowd gathers and they make the speech and whatever, and the sheet is pulled away... Now the statue has been revealed for all to see. It's fully revealed. And and that's the idea. In the book of Revelation, the Holy Spirit is kind of taking the curtains and he's kind of pulling them away. So we see Jesus Christ in his glory. And we see how his purposes are played out on the earth leading up to his return and the establishing of his kingdom. So it's an awesome book. It's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Now this is contrary to to what many teach today, that the book is beyond understanding, that the imagery is so far over the top that really it's virtually impossible for anyone to comprehend what's going on, and therefore this book is best left alone. It's basically a sealed book. Don't worry about reading it. Don't worry about, you know, studying it. And unfortunately, there are a lot of churches who won't touch this book at all. And I'm not sure why, because anything in the Word of God is something we should be studying. And um, those who think this book is essentially a sealed book, I, I don't understand that because that concept is in direct conflict with the very title of the book, The Unveiling of Jesus Christ. 
far from being a sealed book that God never intended anyone to understand, you know, something that is hidden from us, this book is something that God is opening to our understanding. I mean, he's pulling away the curtain, so to speak, so that we can finally see Jesus in all of his glory and fullness. As a matter of fact, it really is a fulfillment of the prophecy that God gave to Daniel so many centuries earlier. You remember as you read the book of Daniel, how God gave to Daniel so many end times prophecies, incredible stuff. And at one point in chapter 12, Daniel says, although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? God, I want to know what these things mean. And the Lord said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. And then we read in our Bibles, the book of Revelation or the book of unveiling or the book of unsealing. I mean, this is a book that this this contains things that Daniel wanted to know about, but they were hidden from his understanding. But God is revealing to us in these last days. A lot of the things written in the book of Revelation, uh, the book of Daniel, too. I mean, for people that lived outside of this, you know, 20th century, 21st century, a lot of it was they had no clue, basically. I mean, you, you should read some of the commentaries before the turn of the last century. And some of them were actually pretty good, but many of them, it was just really bizarre what they interpreted because... They, they did not see these things uh, as being literal. And, and because the language is so, well, it's, it's so modern in a lot of ways in the sense of, of the weaponry and various things, you know, credit, people buying and selling with nothing but numbers. That was foreign thinking to people that lived a hundred and so some years ago. Today, it's common. Hit. It's hard to buy anything with cash today. Uh, you know, it's, it's where you're almost forced into using credit cards or debit cards or something else like that. So this is a book that we need to understand is not sealed at all. In fact, God says, look, it's very much opened. And in fact, I'll go as far as to say this. Well, the book says it itself in verse 3 that God wanted us to read and understand this book so much that he actually attached a special promise of a special blessing to those who read and hear and obey the things that are written in this book. I really think one of the main reasons that people don't read and study this book is not because they have difficulty understanding what it is saying, but because they have a hard time accepting what it is saying. Look, I've been studying and reading this book for almost 30 years, and I can't tell you I've got it all figured out. But one thing is crystal clear. It talks about God judging this godless, Christ-rejecting world at one point, and I think at some point soon, which is going to eventually lead up to the return of Jesus Christ to the planet Earth to establish His kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness and peace and love and joy. That is crystal clear. And let me say this. People don't read the Bible not because they don't understand the Bible. They don't read it because they don't like what they do understand. It's like Mark Twain once said, it isn't the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that trouble me. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand. Those are the ones that trouble me. I like what Donald Gray Barnhouse said. He was just a tremendous man of God and Bible teacher who's with the Lord now. But he said in his commentary on Revelation, 
He said, if we know this book, we will be kept from any astonishment or fear as the age in which we live becomes dead ripe for picking. There are terrible judgments coming upon the world. Those who know this book have no fear whatsoever. For the believer may know, may know not only God's plan, but his own personal place in that plan. This is why Paul was able to write to the Thessalonians, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So one of the blessings that I think we will um, receive when we study this book is, first of all, it tells us what's coming and also assures us that no matter how bad things get, it's all in God's divine program. Something else I think we will receive in the way of blessing as we study this book, it's going to lead us in a treasure hunt throughout the entire Word of God, but primarily the Old Testament. The book of Revelation contains 404 verses, and out of those 404 verses comes 800 references to the Old Testament. There's over 800 references in the book of Revelation tying us to the Old Testament. Which means, as we study this book, it's like a treasure map that's going to take us into every nook and cranny of the Bible, but primarily the Old Testament. So if you're sitting there tonight going, gee, I never really studied the Old Testament. I don't even read it much. Let me just encourage you not to think that way, to start getting into the Old Testament. But as we study this book, believe me, we're going to help you because God has placed in this book all kinds of buried treasures that we will find and dig out of the Old Testament that will help us to unravel the meanings of the imagery and the symbology in this book, the things that scare everybody. Oh, just so many symbols, so much imagery. Nobody can understand that book. People say that because they don't really know the, the Old Testament. If we gave the book of Revelation to a Jewish rabbi and asked him to read it, he would be very comfortable with this book because it is very Jewish in its presentation. But we have to understand, as Jesus said, the volume of the book is written of me, he said. He was talking about the Old Testament. The volume of the book, it is written of me. And to use another analogy, since that is true, then the book of Revelation becomes the lens through which we clearly see Jesus in every type, symbol, shadow in the Old Testament. It's, it's really an amazing study. And you remember how that when Jesus rose from the dead that first Resurrection Sunday, and that afternoon he uh, met up with some disciples that were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, which was a town about maybe seven miles away. And they were pretty down because, you know, their hope for Israel, the Messiah, had been crucified. And this morning they heard some strange stories that the women who went to the tomb found it empty. And they don't know what's going on. And, and we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel and so on and so forth. And Jesus basically just said, you know, don't you have a clue as to what's going on here? This was all spoken of in the Old Testament, in your scriptures. And it says in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, And beginning at Moses... And all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures, that's the Old Testament, the things concerning himself. So we know that Jesus Christ is all over the Old Testament in type and picture and shadow. 
And the book of Revelation becomes kind of a lens by which we can, we can see into the Old Testament and see Jesus in these things. Now, let me just give to you quickly, I'm not going to spend much time on this at all, but I want to just give you a kind of a working knowledge of the four classic views of interpretation of the book of Revelation. The first one, which, by the way, is gaining popularity. Uh, Hank Hennegraaff is coming out with, or has come out with a book, uh, explaining Revelation from what is called the Preterist view. The Preterist view believes that the book of Revelation is not future. In fact, it's all been fulfilled in the first century Roman Empire period. In fact, we have to understand Jesus' words about him coming back as being fulfilled in the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., even though he didn't come back in 70 A.D., even though five different times in the book of Revelation it says it's a prophecy, a prophetic book, a future book, and not to mention chapters 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation, you'd be hard-pressed to fit anything that happened in the first century into what we see in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. So that's the preterist view. And as I said, it's gaining popularity. The second one is called the historical view. And this view basically sees Revelation as containing all of human history from the apostolic period up to the present day. So if we look hard enough, we'll see the fall of the Roman Empire. We'll see the rise of Catholicism. We'll see the onslaught of Islam. We'll see the French Revolution. I mean, but you have to torture the scriptures pretty hard and allegorize them pretty much to begin to see in these verses in Revelation all events of human history. I don't know, maybe they got the two witnesses in chapter 11 that were killed, the Twin Towers in New York, and here it is right here, you know, and I, I don't know. But they, they, they try really hard to allegorize and symbolize everything in the book to the point where you can basically almost read anything into it. Because they believe it kind of gives us a, a sweep of church history from the apostolic first century period all the way to the, pre, uh, to the present period. But again, like the preterist view... It ignores completely the fact that Revelation claims to be a prophetic book. Well, then you have the idealist view of Revelation. The idealist, you know, let me just stop and say this. There's a large church in the area that for years wouldn't go anywhere near the book of Revelation. And we were kind of sad about that. And then a few years ago, we heard that one of their teaching pastors had announced he was going to be leading the church through the book of Revelation. And we were really excited about that until we discovered he was doing it from the idealist view. That was his take on, what is the idealist view? The idealist view basically says that Revelation is not literal, it's not historical, it's not prophetic. All you have is a collection of myths and legends and fairy tales that present the classic struggle between good and evil in any age of mankind. You can't take it literally, just, it's just... Smiths and, and fairy tales that talk about the struggle between good and evil, and we could just look at it that way, but we're not, it's not historical, it's not literal, it's not prophetic. And that's kind of sad. And again, it ignores the fact that Revelation claims to be a very prophetic book. And that is the fourth view, which is the futurist or the prophetic view. This view sees chapters 4 through 22 as uh, predictions of people and events that are yet to come, they're yet future. And this is the view that I hold to. This is the view that Calvary Chapel holds to. We believe that as we sit here tonight studying this book, 
the events in chapters 4 through 22 are yet future. Yet future from where we are. I'm not saying how much into the future. You know, seems like every day that gets a little closer. But these events are real. They are prophetic. They're literal. And they're yet future. And I think that view was pretty well accepted among most evangelical scholars. Which, by the way, also among most evangelical scholars, I think most of them agree that John the Apostle wrote the book of Revelation. John the Apostle wrote the book of Revelation. In fact, he wrote it about 95 A.D. Now, I'm just giving you some, just some general foundational thoughts so you have an idea of what this book is all about before we launch in. But John wrote the book... Uh, around 95 A.D., unless you're of the, of the preterist camp, then you've got to make it much earlier than that because it all culminates in 70 A.D. with the destruction of the temple. So, I mean, if you're a preterist person, you've got to put it much earlier than, than 95 A.D. But I think most evangelical scholars see uh, that John wrote this book around 95 A.D. He wrote it during the reign of the Roman emperor Titus Flavius Domitian. Domitian was an emperor who had a God complex. He demanded to be worshipped as God and Lord. And anyone who refused to obey this decree uh, met with persecution and death. And of course, the Christians got the brunt of it because they would not call Caesar Lord. Rome was very polytheistic. It didn't really care what gods you worship as long as you acknowledge Caesar as Lord. Now, there was a reason for that. And, And by the way, most of the Caesars didn't really think they were God. But there were a few that did, okay? I mean, there was a few nutjobs, I mean, who really thought they were God. Nero was one of them. And, and there were others. But the idea behind declaring Caesar Lord or a God was this. In the, in the mindset of pagans back then, if a nation or a city came up against you, whatever was victorious, whatever city, whatever nation, it was accepted that their gods were stronger than your gods, Because it just stands to reason, right? I mean, if they beat you, then obviously their gods were stronger than your gods. And Rome was pretty strong. Rome was a very powerful empire. And when they would march against a city or a nation and they would take it, what they would do is they would say, well, you know, we beat you because Caesar is a god. Now, won't you worship Caesar as your god? And if the people agreed to that, and they always did, really, because who wants to be on the losing side? You want to be on the winning team. And if Caesar is a god and he's that powerful, and look at how strong the Roman Empire is, yeah, I want to get on board with him as my god. And here's the idea. If you could get a group of people to acknowledge Caesar is your god, you don't have to have a lot of troops stationed there. You can pull them all out, leave just a little contingent of soldiers, because nobody's going to rebel against their gods. It was ingenious, really. And so they could, they could leave a, a few soldiers in a location, pull most of them out, and go conquer the next city or nation. So it's pretty ingenious. And as I said, most of the Caesars realized they weren't really God, but some of them actually believed that. I think Domitian was one of those characters who kind of thought he was divine. And tradition says it was Domitian who got so angry with John, the apostle, because John was so uh, committed to his testimony for Jesus Christ He wouldn't call Caesar Lord. Jesus was his Lord. And so he was so committed to Jesus that Domitian was so angry with this apostle that he ordered him thrown into boiling oil and executed. Well, again, tradition says they threw John into this pot of boiling oil, but it had no effect on him. I guess he just kind of bobbed up and down. He was the first friar, you might say. (laughs) 
But anyways, so they couldn't, you know, they couldn't kill him that way, which, by the way, tells us that, you know, until God is through with you and me, until he's through with us, we're indestructible. Until God is finished with us, we're indestructible. And God wasn't finished with John. So Domitian was so angry that he actually had John banished to the Isle of Patmos uh, out in the um, off the coast of Asia Minor, just a barren rock that juts up out of the Aegean Sea. And I'm talking a rock, folks. There isn't even any uh, fresh water on the island. There's no vegetation. It's not Maui, believe me, all right? Think, oh, he was kind of on, a, on a, the island of Patmos. It's not like that. It's a big rock in the Aegean Sea. And it was actually a penal colony that Rome had there. They would send prisoners there to die. It was a God-forsaken place. And here John finds himself in this extreme isolation. And it was there that God gave him one of the greatest revelations that anyone has ever received. We'll talk more about that when we get into chapter 1 a little more next week. But right now, though, it just suffices to say that here was John on this barren island probably feeling about as lo- alone and probably discouraged as he maybe ever felt in his life. And in his darkest hour, Jesus comes to him and gives him one of the greatest revelations that anyone's ever gotten, as I said. And when John finished writing Revelation, in the year 96, Domitian died. And the next emperor allowed John to leave the island and return to Ephesus, where he lived out the rest of his life ministering there. He even died and was buried in Ephesus. Tradition also says that as John became very elderly, now remember now, towards the end of the first century, now he's, he's getting up there. And uh, he was so weak because he was so old and frail that they actually had to carry him in a chair different places to minister. And they walked the apostle John in and sit him down. And all he would say is, little children love one another. And that was it. And it so impacted people. I mean, it just revolutionized the church in that area. I mean, just the fact that he just said, look, all I want to tell you is just love one another. And the people were like, wow, that's profound. You know, I mean, and, and they took him off and he was done. I mean, you know, so um, but it, that it just some some neat things. And we'll we'll see some of this as we go. But uh, let me just give you uh, the outline of the book. The outline for the book actually comes out of verse 19 of chapter 1, where Jesus said to John, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this, or actually after these things. And we're going to see that's a very important phrase in the Greek, metatauta. Uh, it's a, a div- dividing line. But here's how the book falls into its three uh, main sections. First of all, Jesus told John, write the things which you have seen. That would be the vision of Jesus he sees in chapter 1, as we're going to get to next week primarily. Uh, The vision of Jesus in chapter 1. Then the Lord said to John, and write the things which are. Those would be the things of chapters 2 and 3. Chapters 2 and 3, Jesus dictated seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. When John was living, the church, of course, had already begun. He was, the church age had started. And Jesus is telling John that you are to write the things which are. At that time, of course, the church age, as it is still today, was going on. So chapters 2 and 3 are things that pertain to the church. 
Chapter 4 begins with the phrase, after these things. Metatauta. It's a dividing line. Okay, after what things? After the things of chapters 2 and 3. Or after the church age comes to a close, when is the church age going to come to a close? The rapture. And it's interesting, and not everybody agrees with this, but John opens up chapter 4 by saying, after these things, after the church is done, the church age, I heard a voice as a trumpet saying to me, come up here. And I will show you things after these things. What did Paul say? And the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain upon the earth will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. It's the rapture. And so we believe chapter 4 begins the final section of the book of Revelation, which covers the rapture of the church. It covers the entire seven-year period that we call the tribulation period or the Old Testament calls the time of Jacob's trouble. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message as well as many other studies can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. Set free.